For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers might not be hindered. The word of the Lord. We've been making our way through First Peter, asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? One of the things that the gospel holds out for us is that we are free in Christ. For freedom, we have been set free, and this is one of the priorities that Peter is communicating to these young churches. But as Peter communicates the value and reality of their freedom, one of the challenges is that they would use their freedom in the wrong way. Peter's concerned that if they use their freedom simply to do what they want to do or simply to acquire the rights and privileges that they think that they deserve, this ultimately will actually undermine the gospel going forward, uh, the story of Jesus. And Peter says this quite explicitly in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It precedes our reading a little bit, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Because as Peter moves on, this is what is kind of his introduction to him moving through his instructions to slaves and to wives and to husbands, which is the ancient household code. But in 2.11 he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is Peter's concern? What's his priority? That the church and their expression of freedom would actually be conducting themselves in a very honorable way. That they would be living in such a way and telling uh, the story of Jesus in such a way that even though Gentiles may get angry at them and may speak against them, ultimately they're going to be persuaded by the life that is lived by the believer. 
In other words, their very life of faithfulness is going to be a testimony to the whole world. Not of just the words that speak of the gospel, but that the gospel becomes embodied in the church itself. So this is what Peter is after as he then proceeds to flesh it out with slaves and wives and husbands as he gives instructions there. But it raises the question immediately for us, you know, as we are elect in exile, chosen and set apart for God's purposes, are we conducting ourselves with such honor? Are we living in such faithfulness that we tell the Jesus story well to the world? And here I think we have to struggle a little bit. You know, when we acknowledge that our marriages fail at the same rate as those outside the church, when we recognize that we're largely selfish with our money and much more prone to spend it on our desires rather than God's desires, we often say that we're busy. We look just as busy as those around us, but it's not necessarily with kingdom work. Right? We're exhausted. It's not necessarily from carrying our cross. Right? And I think we're often more concerned with the activity schedule of our children than with their actual holiness. So we have, to, we have to be self-reflective. We have to ask, okay, is this vision that Peter has for the church something that we are laboring to embody? Or are we missing the mark in some capacity? The danger for Peter as he instructs the church is that you understand that you're free in Christ, but that you use that freedom to move in a direction that you want to move in rather than moving in the direction that God wants you to move in. So how do we understand this freedom? How do we understand its use appropriately? I think a good analogy as we move through to think about is uh, we underestimate the effect that being born in sin and brokenness has on us. And I think a helpful analogy is the character of Brooks from the Shawshank Redemption. If you recall that movie, uh, Brooks is a prisoner. He's the older guy in the movie, and he gets released midway through, but he spent decades in prison. And so he goes to the outside world and is ill-equipped, right? The world has changed. And he doesn't know how to function outside of the routine and regularity of the prison life. And so he tries to adjust, but he finds himself unable to. He actually misses life in prison and decides to take his own life. And we understand that we're set free in Christ. We think, okay, well, now I'm, I'm ready to pursue whatever I want to pursue, Right? I'm going to labor. But we underestimate the ways in which we have been shaped and conditioned by our imprisonment to sin and to death and to the brokenness of this world. And if we think that we can just employ our freedom any way that we want to, goodness, we run in a dangerous direction because the degree that our freedom in Christ is employed to accomplish what we desire is often the degree to which we move away from Christ himself. So how is our freedom employed in a way that honors the story of Jesus and tells it? This is is what Peter holds out for us this morning. So let's uh, learn from his instruction, particularly to wives and to husbands. Now I'm talking about this new freedom that is existent in Christ and how Peter is bringing it to bear. Now that might be a little bit hard to see because... Uh, Peter isn't, we're not talking about the language of freedom right on the, on the front, but when you compare the letter Peter is writing to other ancient literature, you see that freedom is very much part of what he's articulating. Because Peter does two things that were pretty much unheard of in the ancient world. Number one, he's writing directly to slaves, as we saw last week, and he's writing to wives directly. Now remember, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, The household code was you have the father male figure over the household and then you have uh, wives and children and slaves and everyone comes under the authority of the father. 
So if you look at other examples of ancient literature in which someone's trying to encourage the household to live in a certain way, it's written to the father. And then the father will in turn turn around and raise the household in that capacity, in that fashion. You don't see someone writing directly to slaves and to wives in the ancient world. It didn't happen. And so Peter is expressing an enormous amount of respect. He's uh, expressing a degree of liberation to those aspects of the household code that had not occurred before. Now, not only that, he's addressing them, but he's also encouraging them to choose their own God, which was also unheard of. Right? Remember, the household code is this idea in the Greco-Roman world that all of society, if you want a healthy, well-ordered society, you need a healthy and well-ordered home. Well, how do you have a healthy and well-ordered home? Everybody worships the same God. You can't have everybody choosing a different God. Who makes the decision? Well, obviously, the head of the household, the father does, and everybody else falls in line. Peter's saying, yes, slaves and wives, you can worship Jesus. You can recognize him as Messiah. That is a radical idea in the ancient world and not an idea that would be without trouble. Right? When, um, for example, if you know, the, the, the little town that you live in in the Greco-Roman world realizes that you see Susie walking to worship by herself at the new little church that's worshiping the strange foreign god. Well, when something bad happens in town, and you ask, why are the gods upset with us? Well, you look around and you point pretty quickly to Susie. Right? Her, that household and to her husband, Roger, right? your household's out of order. Your wife is worshiping a different god. You're alienating the gods of this town. You better get your household in order. And you have pressure bearing down on them, and the persecution that's beginning to, uh, to simmer isn't quite to a boil yet, but it eventually will be in the Greco-Roman world against Christianity. So this is a situation in which Peter's writing, this is the freedom that we see that he's expressing to these people that would not have been, uh, would not have been thought to have this freedom in the ancient world. So he's saying there's a liberty in Christ. But in the same moment, he's, he's concerned, he's worried that that liberty would go in a direction that would ultimately compromise the gospel. And so he goes on to flesh this out, this freedom. He says, freedom must be understood and employed in a certain way as a result of the gospel. Now for Peter, what's his example? We read through it at the beginning. Peter's example for how we are to live and how we are to um, fulfill our role, so to speak, in God's kingdom agenda is Jesus himself. Now look at chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now remember that, that verbiage, for example, we talked about last week, is the, is the language you would use of a child tracing an alphabet letter to learn how to write. What Peter is saying Christ has left you an example. In other words, you're supposed to trace his life and tell his story as you live. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to trace the life of Jesus? Peter proceeds immediately from suffering in 21, saying that Jesus was reviled but did not revile in return. He suffered but did not threaten return. Why? Because he entrusted himself to the will of the Father, and by his wounds we are healed. Redemption is accomplished. This is the example that we're supposed to trace. A participation in the suffering of Jesus that extends the gospel to the world. If you want a faith that gives you good things and doesn't require much of you, you, Christianity is not not what you want. 
You've signed up for the wrong religion. And Peter proceeds to say, okay, if we take this example of Christ, and he's already done this, as we saw last week with slaves, but proceeds to talk about wives. Now listen, you have to look closely at what Peter is trying to say. You know, sometimes over the years I've seen uh, both Ephesians 5 and uh, 1 Peter 3, both issues about um, wives submitting to husbands, right? And really, the right idea of that word is more like um, you shouldn't withdraw more than submit. But even if we put submit on the table, you know, some guys over the years have made real issues out of their wives submitting. And I have a pretty, degree, a pretty high degree of sympathy with one commentator who has said rather famously, I've never known a submission issue without an issue of a controlling husband. Right? If you're worthy of submission, if you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church, then submission is not going to be a big issue in your home. It's going to be a pretty non-existent issue uh, to be straight. But that, um, the whole point of saying that is that this isn't the primary concern of Peter. Peter is writing particularly to households in which the wife has converted, but the husband has not. Right? And so we might assume that in the church, the churches that he's working with, there have been a higher number of women who have converted to worship Jesus than there have been men. And so they're living in households where this has become disruptive. Right? They're no longer following the head of the household and worshiping the God that he's chosen. And instead, they're going to worship Jesus. So we've already talked about how this can be problematic. So Peter says you have to do this in a way that, that, um, that doesn't give any additional reason for the house to be disrupted, for the husband to be angry. Right? Conduct yourself in an honorable way so that the gospel has the best opportunity to be heard. Right? This, is, this is Peter's agenda going back to 2, 11, and 12 that we read. Right? That the Gentiles would have opportunity to glorify God and that the husband might have opportunity to convert because the Jesus story that the wife is telling is so compelling. And so he, she, he talks about the good conduct that she should be engaged in. He goes on in verses 3 and 4. says, listen, don't worry so much about your external adornment. Right? Talk about a culture that's consumed in some ways with external adornment. Your jewelry, your clothes, your hair don't matter so much. What matters is what's on the inside. Right? Do you have a quiet and a gentle spirit? Is this something that is winsome and re- uh, reflects Jesus uh, to your husband and is pleasing in the sight of God, according to verse 4? And then in verse 5, uh, Peter goes on to say uh, that this is how all the holy women of old, right, those we look to in the Old Testament, have lived and hoped in God uh, that's how they adorn themselves, being more concerned with the internal qualities than with, uh, or internal adornment than with external adornment. Now, Peter does a funny move in uh, this verse 5 and following. And the funny move is this. He goes and uses Sarah as an example of what it means to be a woman who submits um, and honors her husband. Now, just to be frank, uh, commentators don't know what to do with this. And in some ways, neither do I. In fact, some commentators absolutely skip it. I was reading one commentator waiting to hear what he would say about this and suddenly realized that I was past it and that he had said nothing. He just moved right through it. Now, the reason that it's awkward is if you know the Abraham and Sarah story, that's not a place you're going to go to for an example of submission, right? At at three major decisive turns in the Abraham and Sarah story, Abraham obeys Sarah rather than Sarah obeying Abraham. So you think, what is Peter after here? Well, some people think maybe he's thinking of the times where Sarah goes along with Abraham's very uh, 
not good idea that he, she be passed off as his sister in a foreign environment so that they don't come and beat him up to steal his wife. All right? Again, if you, that's what Peter's saying. That's more than a little uncomfortable, that this is his example of submission. And so commentators are like, well, in Judaism at large, Sarah was a pretty venerated woman. She was thought of as respectable and holy and was one of the matriarchs of, of Israel. And so Peter is just playing along with that in terms of that cultural assumption, that Jewish tradition that Sarah should be venerated in that way. But it raises an eyebrow because uh, why, that isn't abundantly clear. But overall, I don't think it makes it that difficult to understand what Peter's saying. Peter's writing to the church, says, Wives, you have unparalleled freedom in Christ. You can choose the God that you worship, and I'm instructing you in this. But you know what? Conduct yourselves in humility and respect toward your husband. This is going to disrupt your household. It's going to disrupt your town. Eventually, it's going to turn the entire Mediterranean world upside down. And so since that's the direction we're headed on, right, a messianic revolution, let's conduct it in such a way that we give everyone the best opportunity to believe in Jesus as Messiah and not to compromise it, right? Because you, you can imagine some of the women who are converting may say, well, I am now wed to Christ. And, you know, I don't like you and I don't like your God and I am going to beat up and critique you and move on. You know, who knows? But Peter is saying that's not going to be a good telling of the Jesus story. It's not a sacrifice. It's not a willing suffering. It's not a humility that actually reflects the story of Jesus. It's a story that says, I think I'm free, so I'm going to demand that my rights come this way. And Peter says the same, something very similar to husbands, right, from the other angle. Now, husbands, um, husbands are being treated less probably because uh, it, when you start to knead out the implications of the gospel into the household code, right, slaves and wives are going to be affected much more dramatically and as a result that has the possibility of upsetting society more. But what he says to husbands is pretty radical. Right? Husbands are supposed to be heads of the household and run everything and make sure that there's order. This isn't how Peter talks to them. He says, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Right? Be kind, be loving, be tenderhearted. Right? I knew one piece of work in uh, my work uh, in ministry um, who, who, just, who decided that weaker vessel meant that women were inherently weaker in all shapes, forms, and sizes and uh, were really a lesser human being. That isn't at all what Peter is saying. There, there are significant connotations to the words that Peter is using of um, uh, w- weaker, and it, it's, um, it's the connotation of knowing and being known as the Bible speaks of it. It's, uh, you could think of it as the receiving vessel, right? And so what Peter is saying is um, be really thoughtful and really compassionate about how you treat your wife in the most intimate of occasions, right? So he's calling the husband, who's the power player, to demonstrate real humility and grace in the context of the marriage. It's really a beautiful picture of how husband and wife would love one another, would serve one another um, in the midst of Jesus coming into this uh, into the household code and turning it really upside down compared to the Roman world. Now, how in the world do we, um, what do we take away from that? And our marriages and our household codes aren't really like the Greco-Roman world in the first century, so what am I supposed to learn from this? 
Remember, Peter's concern is that, yes, you have freedom, but don't use that freedom in a way that undermines the gospel itself. And so, as we are trying to live out the gospel, as we are trying to follow Jesus' example, what are ways in which you might take your freedom and use it in a way that undermines the gospel itself? Do you, um, you know, the notion that, oh, I'm free to give what I want. I'm not bound by any Old Testament law of giving, so I'm going to give a minimum, and then I feel liberated. That's not a very compelling Jesus story. Pretty compelling selfish story, right? Or, uh, you know, uh, young people, not really young people, but young people, right? And um, an argument or a thought process that I often hear is, you know, I'm only forbidden uh, in real explicit intimacy, but there are lots of things that I can do before I get to that mark. In other words, I'm going to explore and exercise my freedom in terms of intimacy as long as I don't cross that line of law. It's interesting when we, um, when we start to engage and express our freedom in ways that we desire, you will hear a lot of law talk because we want to reduce our requirements to some kind of minimum in which we can then pursue what we want to pursue. But so often when we apply freedom the way we want to apply freedom, we're doing nothing more than saying, I want to, uh, great, Jesus has saved me. I'm not going to hell. I'm saved for eternity, and now I can embrace the American dream. And that's not a Jesus story. You're not following his example, and you're not telling the world anything compelling. Right? All you're ending up doing is looking exactly like your neighbor on your left and your neighbor on your right. And maybe that's why we feel distant from Jesus and maybe why our faith suffers. Right? Because if we're not participating in the Jesus story, we're not moving toward him, and he isn't moving toward us. It's this example that's so important to Peter, Jesus having been reviled, did not revile in turn, having suffered, did not threaten, willingly goes to the cross and trusting himself to the Father. In other words, Peter's drawing a picture of the Son of God who has every right and privilege in the cosmos, who is the very creator, and abandons it all. He lays it all down so that he could win us, so that he could redeem us. And now we're to follow that example. Well, this must require of us a laying down of rights and privileges, a sacrifice of things that we're entitled to in order to tell the gospel story better. And I think this can look a number of different ways, but I tried to think of three real people right, for whom this is playing out in different ways to help us all think about what does it really mean to tell the Jesus story. And so the first example is Roger. And Roger is in his 40s. His marriage is not doing well. Right? It's kind of tanking. He's not entirely sure why, but he knows that when his wife gets angry or upset or emotional, he uh, feels the desperate need to uh, leave the building. So he will go and run and get on the computer, or he'll go to the garage and work on something, or it will be a night out with friends, anything to avoid the tension and the conflict. So Roger comes to faith. He's experiencing freedom in Christ. He begins to think this out and begins to read passages like 1 Peter 3 and says, okay, what is really my role towards my wife? I know this happens. Why does it happen? He talks with uh, some friends in the church and, and begins to tell his story that, yes, Roger grows up in a home. His father leaves at an early age. His mother is raising him. Uh, he becomes kind of the oldest kid who's responsible for the siblings and to make his mom happy. But his mom drinks a fair bit, and when she drinks, she tends to fly off the handle. So Roger has to figure out how to navigate this world growing up. 
What does he decide to do? Well, he, he, knows, he learns how to read the signs. When these things start happening, I know where my mom is headed, and I'm going to evacuate. I'm going to go hide. And when the storm has passed, then I'll come back and re-engage. And so as Roger's talking this through, he says, huh, that sounds a lot like my marriage. Right? And Roger begins to think, oh, maybe I've learned this a very long time ago. And maybe I need to go back and understand why I learned it and how it shaped me so that I can actually do a better job of loving my wife and engaging freedom of Christ in a way uh, that really is sacrificial, that I enter in. But he realizes to do this that he will have to go back and ask hard questions. Like, why did a loving God put me in a home with uh, a father who didn't love me and uh, a mother that was a drunk and didn't love me well either? Those are hard questions. And so Roger stands at a place where if I go and enter into the story, that requires sacrifice and suffering. Or I could just stay where I am. What is he going to be willing to sacrifice and suffer potentially, right? To lay down. He might think, I have the right. You know what? I've been married for 15 years and I've loved her fine and I've provided everything that's necessary for this household because I'm a hard worker. He says, I don't need to do any of that. What's he doing? He's really protecting himself from actually making a greater sacrifice. And the irony of it is that actual greater sacrifice would provide him greater liberty. Right? How is Roger really going to learn freedom? Only by entering into that story. Only by asking those hard questions. Until he does, he exists in a world that he's made and will continue to have the desperate need to evacuate. So that's one example of what it might mean to actually suffer, to sacrifice, to lay down my rights and privileges, even though Roger may think he's entitled to something different, to do something to tell the Jesus story better, particularly to his wife. We could talk about Theodore. Right? Theodore is a uh, well-funded individual. It right? works in finance, uh, has made a lot of money. Right? And Theodore converted uh, late in life. He came to believe the gospel and to worship Jesus. Now, uh, Theodore... You know, is moving towards Christ. He starts to practice his faith, and he understands that part of practicing his, practicing his faith is giving ten percent of his income. So he's very faithful to give ten percent, but he's very calculated, and then it won't be a dime over ten percent. And the rest of the ninety percent goes towards what he wants to. And Theodore really likes having the freedom of buying whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Right? That's power to him. It's freedom to him. Right? But as he grows in Christian community, and as he feels himself not growing close closer to Christ in any substantive way. He talks with friends and friends say, well, you know, maybe you need to sacrifice more. Your story of giving away 10% and retaining the other 90% isn't a very compelling Jesus story. You're not really following the example of the person who gave up absolutely everything to be obedient to the will of the Father. And so what would it mean for you to give more generously and identify with that story? So Theodore started to give more radically. He started to give radically enough that he actually had to make sacrifices, saying, I'm not going to be able to do this or to acquire this so that I can fund this, so that I can give money to this. Right? And what happened? He began to grow, he began to know Christ, because Christ shows up in the telling of his story. When you follow his example, that is where Jesus does his best work. And last example, uh, Betty. Betty's a sweet woman. She grew up in the church. Right, You know, an older, saintly lady, everyone looks up to and thinks, that woman is really holy. 
And indeed, she, she knew her stuff and she conducted herself very honorably. And occasionally, every week, she would get together with a couple of women in the church and would invest in them. But that was kind of it. You know, she had her two or three appointments a week, and then she, her box was checked. And the rest of the week, she wasn't available. She didn't serve in any way. She protected her time and her energy, and she liked to be left alone. And Betty, right, doesn't realize that she's, she's ultimately just checking a box to pat herself on the back, to, right, to give her a sense of her own self-righteousness, but there's nothing sacrificial about it. There's nothing participating in the suffering of Christ that she would actually lay down her time and energy in a way that would invest in someone and tell the Jesus story in a compelling way that Gentiles might take notice. Right? In each of these cases, Roger, Theodore, and Betty, right, they all have, stand in a place where they say, I know I can sacrifice more. I know I can engage a degree of suffering, but I'm scared to do so, and I don't want to give up what I would have to give up to go down that road. And so the freedom in Christ that they would all say that they have isn't freedom at all. It's just a new form of slavery because they aren't willing to actually employ their freedom in the way that Christ wants. They're simply seeking to be protective of what they have and what they love. And it's only when they begin to dare and to be brave and to sacrifice and to suffer on behalf of Christ that they begin to experience him and begin to be moved back to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. You know, if we were faithful in this, it would be a breathtaking display of the gospel. Right? Not just in things that we say and speak of, but in ways in which we actually uh, almost, per- in a sense, perform the drama of the gospel itself for the world around us. And in ways we're doing it. Right? When we sacrifice to buy a boy's home in India, we're telling the Jesus story. When some of you, as you run your businesses, right? I know some of you, you, you sacrifice whatever skill you have to be a blessing to others. Or some of you provide opportunity for those who are struggling to get back on their feet to play a role in your business, and that costs you something because you don't know how it's going to turn out. They're not that reliable. That's telling the Jesus story. And husbands, when you love your wives tenderly and compassionately and seek to serve them, and wives, when you respect your husbands and seek to honor them, we tell the Jesus story in a world in which marriages have very much stopped living that way. When we follow Jesus' example and tell a story that way by embracing our freedom, not that we're free to do whatever we want, or my goodness, the worst thing possible would be that we're free to be turned over to ourselves. Right? That's not freedom, that's hell. Freedom is that we would be liberated to actually follow the example of Christ. And in that, we move toward the shepherd and overseer of our souls. When we choose not to do it and pursue our own freedom, we move away from him. And there is no middle road between the two. It is one or the other. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt you this morning. We marvel that you, uh, with such power and dignity, would willingly be reviled and willingly be threatened. How easy it would be to squash those who persecuted you. But instead, you laid your life down. Instead, you taught us, uh, revealed to us a different way to live, a different way that revolutions can happen, a different way to be human. And for that, we thank you and praise you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make us uh, courageous, 
and more humble and more strong at the same time as we seek to follow the example of Christ. Would you increasingly put our old selves to death and allow something that is truly beautiful to emerge, uh, both for all of us individually and all of us collectively as, as the church? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.